Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson and I run Stack, the subscription club that delivers a different independent magazine to your door every month. Earlier this week, I spoke with Peter Houston and Joanna Cummings from the Grub Street Journal, a self-described magazine for magazine people, to hear their thoughts on the theme of their latest issue, Why Won't Print Just Lie Down and Die? In a way, this is a pretty unusual magazine for us to feature because this podcast is normally about me speaking with independent publishers about their strange and idiosyncratic projects, whereas Grub Street Journal is really more of a business-to-business magazine for the print industry, albeit one that wants to try doing things that other B2B publishers just wouldn't touch. As you'll hear, Peter and Joanna are also very much independent publishers in the fact that they are two people motivated by a passion for their subject who are somehow finding a way to realise their ideas in income paper and just kind of figuring things out along the way. It was really lovely talking to them, so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Peter and Joanna from the Grub Street Journal. So, Peter, Joanna, thanks so much for making time to talk. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. Uh, so, so you are the, Peter, you're the publisher of Grub Street Journal and Joanna, you're the editorial director. Um, but I feel like that's sort of like, that's kind of jumping into the story like two thirds of the way through. So maybe, <laughs> maybe we could go back a little bit. And you could tell us, first of all, like, what is your background in magazines and how do you get to be doing this thing? I love the fact that you jumped straight on the made-up job titles. I love that. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you put them at the front of your magazine. If you oh, write it, I'm going to use it. classic magazine. All job titles are made up. Exactly. No, they are. Uh, I'll let you go first because you've got... Um, longer. Because you're older and have a longer career. So I first started in magazines in the mid-80s. Um, at the time I was in Hong Kong and I started in trade magazines, which, you know, in so many ways is probably the story for, I don't know, 90% of magazine people, right? Just because there's more trade magazines than there is anything else. Mm. But it was a great place to learn. Um, you know, my first job was rewriting press releases, which is if you can take someone's mental f- 5,000 word press release and get it into a 150 word uh, nib, then you've, you've cracked it. And it's just a great learning experience. And it was also a place where, you know, the mid 80s into the beginning of the 90s, there was so much experimentation going on with digital. Uh, we did everything, everything that we possibly could try and probably got it wrong, but learned loads of lessons in, in the, the, the meantime. Then I came back to the UK, worked for a contract publisher. And again, that's interesting because you learn a lot about um, positioning for different audiences. And you've got a client, so you've got to keep the client happy. You can't sort of, it's quite difficult to fake it till you make it if you're in a contract publishing situation. Who was the the publisher? It was a company, they were based in Macclesfield up in the northwest, but they had a London office. Um, so the company was called Millen and Scott, and they did all sorts. They did some really uh, mad, like building control titles that was, 
and the guys would be selling advertising to builders up ladders and stuff. It was uh, like hardcore. And then we did things like the Caravan Club and the, and the Royal Veterinarian Society and the Steel Construction Institute and all stuff like that. So it was like all sorts in that, that one. They ended up getting sold actually to Bob Geldof's company, Ten Alps. And I left just before that. And then I worked for a couple of smaller publishers and ended up uh, in life sciences um, doing chromatography and ophthalmology and pharmaceuticals and all stuff that, you know, this is someone that doesn't know one end of a test tube from the other. <laughs> um, so again, there's that whole, um, you know, it's content, right? It's all about content. But I think the thread that ties all of those mad things together is just that idea of magazines as a as a product, as a as an entity. Whether you're working for the Steel Construction Institute, or whether you're writing about you know handbags made in Vietnam, or whether you're working about you know chromatography stories, it's the same process to some extent. Um, so yeah, that's kind of it. And then obviously, I went freelance in oh, 2012, 10, 10, 11 years ago. Started working with Media Voices, and we've done the Media Voices podcast now for geez, six or seven years, probably <laughs> on almost 300 episodes. Um, so that's the the kind of other side of what I do at the moment. Okay, so we'll come to Media Voices in a minute because there's also these other things that are bubbling away. So, Joanna, how about you? Um, well, I hate to disappoint you, Steve, but I don't have any travel to Hong Kong or Bob Geldof or anything in my story. I um, I was originally working as a manager in libraries in London and uh, decided to do the Masters at Edinburgh Napier in publishing. I'd originally... Um, plan to go into books but um I went we went to visit the Monocle office in in London and that kind of uh turned my head a little bit and then uh, I did a stint at Think Publishing writing for Tree News and the Royal Photographic Society and things and it really gave me the the bug you know the pace of it writing on different topics so it was when actually during the Masters that I met Peter, he lectured one day and we kind of kept in touch over the years. And my first job after that was also in life sciences. I worked with a lot of people that Peter had known. Um, so that was a B2B publication. And then I worked for a few years on craft newsstand titles. And then about a year and a half ago, I decided to go freelance as a writer and editor. And I've been writing about absolutely all sorts since so stuff for kids for mensa the magazine industry um nasa oligonucleotides <laughs> everything you could possibly think of really so that's what i've been doing for the last 18 months um you've not been writing for nasa you've been writing a no i've not been writing for nasa no <laughs> i was trying to just bring in some glamour i don't have as much as you um so um so yeah, we've kind of come together over the years and that's what um, kind of was a spark really for, you know, starting Grub Street. Yeah, yeah. So so Peter, so you mentioned the Media Voices podcast, which is you plus two others uh, yep. talking about media matters, often around um, print. And then I, so I, I just signed up for your newsletter, your Media Voices newsletter today. And then I saw there's also 
magazine diaries uh, newsletter. So I think the first time I ever encountered you was yep. you writing this thing, magazine diaries. So the so when, when did that kind of slot into the mix? Okay, so the magazine diaries was a project that I did almost exactly ten years ago, two thousand and fourteen. And I guess the 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 kind of kernel of Grub Street is in there. The whole point of that project was um, I was going to get 100 magazine people to write 100 words each about what the digital transition was like for them. Uh, you know, I had this little, you know, bit at the beginning where I talked about a New Yorker cartoon where Wally is in there and he's really pissed off. He's sat at a bar and he's getting hammered at this bar. And he says, no one ever asks how's Wally. They only ask where's Wally. And I, that was how I felt about magazine publishing. It was like people were doing this digital thing to you. You know, we were we were having this whole industry replaced from underneath us. We still are. <laughs> um, and I just thought, okay, let's get let's get these people writing about this. And it was brilliant. You know, it was all sorts of people, um, and writing all sorts of different points of view. Some people like, oh, I love it. This is great. I love this digital things. And there was other people like, oh my god, this is like being in Berlin in nineteen forty five and. For eating our own shoes, kind of thing. But the point with that, and I think where this, there's a direct line between that and Grub Street, is this idea that magazine people are people too. We're not just spreadsheets and KPIs and edit, add editorial ratios and, you know, your next newsletter or your next podcast or your next website you know magazine people are people and they've all got stories to tell a lot about what they do and how they do it and why they do it but you know also daft stuff like this issue we got that the, the tattoo feature in there um, okay so, well, so which is a, a feature where you it, it said well in the introduction to it uh you is you say that like it's very much about the magazine people and their lives and in the introduction it's kind of the writer saying that this piece started with me and Peter sitting on a boat drinking whiskey. <laughs> I kind of, you, there, there's a real kind of collegiate feel to the magazine. Yeah. You're, well, you're trying to sort of have fun with it, I guess. It's. I mean, it's nice to hear you saying that because that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, so that's the, sto the story as we were at a trade show, the publishing show, I think, uh, and Mark, however it happened, we said we were talking about tattoos. Mark says, oh, I'll show you my tattoo. And it's his logo. It's his magazine logo. And then he goes on and tells this whole story about getting it done in Las Vegas at the Motley Crue's singer's tattoo shop. And it was just, I think we both at that point thought, oh, there's so many of these stories we've got to get on it. We're trying because, you know, on the surface, we're a business-to-business -business magazine. We're talking or hoping to talk to and on behalf of people in the magazine industry but we're trying to do things that other b2b magazine publications wouldn't do and that tattoo feature is a really good example of that that's about you know the way that we're building relationships with people in the industry and showing them as real people you've got ridiculous stories as well as you know fantastic insights into kind of the business side of it as well mm -hmm. in that same issue there's a story that joe did about uh flat planning um, and that was really just her phoning up two mates, 
well, who happened to both be senior magazine people, one Diane Kenwood, who was at Women's Weekly, and the other uh, Kate Heppel, who was running Now, was it? The Craft Yeah, magazine. all the titles, yeah. So it just so happens that, you know, those two pals that she talks about flat planning about are people that have got serious experience in flat planning. And I think that's the kind of thing that we want to try and get to. But that's it's not just about us, I don't know, showing off who we know. That's that's not the intention. Oh, really? Well, it might be for you. But for me, it's um it's about trying to encourage people all over the magazine and just to, to actually just talk to each other in that way, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. familiar way. Because in some ways, obviously you've got your huge uh, companies publishing magazines, but a lot of uh, magazine publishers are quite small and the industry can feel very small, even though there are a lot of people involved with it. That kind of um, interaction and knowledge sharing and story sharing and all that is something that I think really characterises the industry. And that's something that we want to kind of channel uh, when mm. we when we're publishing a lot of the Grub Street Journal stories, mm-hmm. so the the theme of this latest issue uh, is uh, why won't print just lie down and die? So so that that feels like a, a kind of a, a typically Grub Street approach to the Correct. question of this kind of like resurgence of print and stuff. So so tell me like how did that come about? How do you find yourself making that issue? Well, it's something that you'd, the, that concept of print being almost like a zombie that keeps crawling back out of the grave, that's something you've been thinking about for a while, isn't it, Peter? Uh, but of course, once we decided to to publish a magazine, and not only that, to publish a print one and document that and experience how hard it would be in the current uh, climate, it just seemed the perfect fit. So we knew we wanted to cover it at some point in our fairly limited run um and of course it ended up being very very well timed because in the last few months in particular people have been talking about that print resurgence and you see things like nmes obviously being published slightly fewer than it was before and you know l australia and and people like that there is this kind of picking up of print and this idea of the value of niche publications for readers and things like that so it's kind of just coalesced really well into something that's been really topical and and we specifically decided to release it on october the 31st just to have a little bit of fun with the uh the zombie (laughs) halloween theme and and as you know from the cover we've gone a little bit b movie so we you know we've had a lot of fun with it in the end but it's a really, obviously, really um, important conversation to be having right now. I think that's the starting point for any of the issues is the sort of questions that you hear. So Media Voices is a great, you know, launch pad for some of this stuff because we're talking about hardcore B2B. That is all about KPIs and it is all about strategies and, and, and uh, you know, that, that business of mag- of publishing, rather, I should say, because it's not just magazines, it's news as well. And Joanna does, um, she writes for FEP, she, so she's covering a lot of publishing stuff there. So we're, we're in, kind of embedded in this, how do you make a publishing company work kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> but so much of that is just that, like I said, that proper KPI type stuff. And that's not when we so we planned the very first issue of Grub Street in a pub in Congleton where we live, and it was called the Little Street Cellar. 
And we we pretty much planned that whole issue, sat in the pub. And it's a case, we want, I th- okay, you can jump in if I'm talking straight here, but we want people to read the magazine as if maybe it's a type of conversations they might be having in a pub. It just so happens that we are talking to, I don't know, people from magazines that they maybe haven't met or from publishing companies that they maybe haven't met. And, and it's that breadth of people, you know, for the first issue, I interviewed Mark Allen, who's, you know, the head of one of the biggest B2B publishers in Britain. People might not know that much about Mark Allen, but it was this really nice conversation, just, you know, him and I. Joanna interviewed for the last issue a couple of people that do a LGBTQ magazine called Somewhere, Somewhere for Us. us. And they, they, in a way, they're at the almost at the opposite end of the publishing spectrum. Mm-hmm. But for us, there's still a lesson there, or there's still something worth knowing about who these people are, why they do what they do, whether that's someone that, you know, Mark Allen told me a story about buying a jazz magazine just because he loved jazz. You've got to be careful how you say jazz magazine, to be honest. Yeah, apparently, jazz magazine's a euphemism. I didn't know about that. A jazz music magazine. Um, you know, and that story is really interesting. And amongst this, you know, this idea of here's a business that's actually doing really well and making some money. Mm. And then you've got the, the somewhere for us guys that are, are, you know, being blunt or being honest. I cried when I read some of that story because it was just so, to me, it was so much about what magazines are about. It's like, why do you make this magazine? Well, it's to make people in this community feel better about their lives and that's taking it i mean all magazines are catering for a community as such but somewhere for us it's obviously taking it to another level and uh, you know representing and including members of community being marginalized and so that yeah it gave me that extra layer um mm. that extra human layer mm. um but you know to, to tie into what you were saying now steve um you know the fact that they're a print publication is a huge, huge part of their success and also the way that they reach their communities. You know, people who don't want to read things in digital, they want that time alone with that print publication and, and the privacy of having that publication to themselves. Mm, because mm, no, absolutely. People in, yeah, are in, are in those situations and it's it's not easy. So, um, yeah, I think everyone we've spoken to, whether they are working in print or digital, all have a respect for print, uh, I would say. So, the, so you, you bring up the kind of the spectrum of, you know, sort of on the one hand, you've got the very small magazine made for a, a community. And on the other hand, you've got like, you know, the, the big kind of business uh, of magazines. Mm. And I guess I, I'm very, I'm very accustomed to being at the small end. So with the magazines that we send out on Stack, these are magazines that tend to be made for passion. It's because someone wants it to exist. Mm-hmm. It, sort of doesn't really matter to them if it doesn't make money because that's not the main reason that they're doing it you know often it's like can this thing just make enough money to keep itself going yeah there's um, obviously a massive gulf between that and the kind of magazines that you might say see represented at FIP or the you know kind of or, or like you know sort of the the big commercial magazines and actually so it, it, in this kind of conversation that is starting to bubble up a bit at the moment about this resurgence of prints, 
I feel like it's the stuff that's happening in that end that's getting people more excited. So the so on on our uh, Stack Discord group, there's a couple of people have been chatting about like um, nylon uh, coming back. Oh yeah. Rumors that I think that uh, Vice is coming back in um, in print, and I'm really interested by like it, so if that happens, what are they going to do differently? Because you know, it's the, the it's like there's there's one version of making those magazines that has been tried and that didn't work for various reasons. Mm. But I wonder what the th- what's the thing they're going to try differently? Do you, do you have any sense of that from kind of your like overview of of all these magazines? Yeah, and and the best expression of it I've seen. Uh, is a lady called Kat Craddock who's relaunching Saveur magazine. Or is it Saveur? Saveur. Anyway, food, gourmet food magazine. <laughs> Obviously showing my foodie credentials there. <laughs> anyway, she's relaunching the Saveur in print. Um, so they, whoever, I think Bonnie had it before. Um they certainly had it at one point, and they, they, whoever owned it said, no, we're not doing print anymore. I think that was back in 2018. Um, and then I guess in the, the pandemic, the whole thing, you know, as, as for so many people just went to crap. She actually bought the title from whoever owned it at that point. It was online only. And she's now saying, okay, you've been asking for it for so long, guys, we're back in print. But she's very, very honest. She says, we're not coming back into print the way we used to be. We're not playing the game that publishers used to play, particularly in the States where they discounted subscriptions so low. Mm -hmm. You you would get a year for a dollar or whatever it was just so that they had to scale so they could sell advertising. She says, we're not doing that anymore. We're not going to be as the same level of the same frequency. We won't probably have as many pages, mm. um, but the pages that we do have will be brilliant and they'll be targeted right at you. Mm. Um, and we'll put our heart and soul and you know, the production values will be very high because actually now you're going to have to pay for it. You're not going to get it for a dollar a year. And I think Hoth, the announcement for Hoth coming back into print is really interesting because I think it crystallises a lot of that thinking. You know, I think it's different from from NME coming back. I'm an NME cynic. Possibly because I read NME, you know, the original NME, and you know when they went free and they had Rihanna on the cover, it was like, oh my god, it's like the death of my youth. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I, you know, I hold my hand up for being an NME cynic, but um, oh, the other side of that is anyone that can make a product work, a magazine or a or a website work, God love them because I know how hard that is. Them coming back. Is a very different play. It's not newsstand. It's very limited runs. I think it's only twice a year, mm. and it's a ten or a go. Mm. Um, so that's what's different about it. It's not okay. We're going to sell 
250,000 copies of this thing and we're going to have it in every WH Smith in the country. It's not that game anymore. Mm. I was going to say, it's a, a whole different kind of climate, isn't it? Newsstands changed so much even in the last few years. You can't rely on it the same way. You need a really, really engaged audience before you even start out, if you were to launch something. They have got a huge fan base, people like Enemy, to, to kind of sell to, but it's a much more targeted approach, isn't it, than sending a lot of copies to supermarkets and, and kind of banking on those kind of incidental sales. It's definitely more about that really, really direct relationship with audiences and that building up of subscribers um, mm -hmm. in a way that probably wasn't as necessary, well, still important, but wasn't as necessary at one time. I think the big thing there is that the newsstand has come to meet indie rather than the other way around. I think newsstand publishers have learned a lot from indie publishers in terms of the community using social media, direct sales, high production values, passion projects. I think that is all in there. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And then I guess at the same time, while all this is happening, we've also still got the magazines that are actually doing well. I mean, the you know, it's, it, it says a lot that these days, you know, it's kind of uh, a magazine stands out when its, its numbers uh, are going up or holding steady. But you look at something like The Week and you just think, well, actually it makes total sense. Like the, this is, it's providing people with a, a, a genuine service, make them feel informed without feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. I know several people who subscribe to the week and it's just sort of like, yeah, okay, that, that feels like it's fairly substantial, fairly stable. Yeah. Yeah, high quality journalism, balance at a time when people don't trust the media. Mm. Yeah, well, there's so many reasons the week's doing so well. It's, okay. the, it's the bane of all our lives. The bloody week. To get everything right. <laughs> the, uh, we want to be like the week. Well, the other one that does really, really well is Private Eye. Yeah. And that's been, yeah, it's going so long. You know, I think a, a, a lot of those publications actually are, are not growing. You know, they were growing, but they're not anymore. Whereas Private Eye is still growing. Mm. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the Economist in print and the Week in print and the Week Junior in print and the Spectator and all them, they were growing, but I think now they're pretty flat. Right. But something like Private Eye just seems to keep going on and on and on. And I, it comes back to that yeah. I, that brand thing. It's like, this is my brand. This is me. This is who I am. I, I want to be seen carrying Private Eye under my arm. Yes. Know? Exactly, yeah. And I guess also it's, it's significant, well, maybe it's significant that they never got into the same game as the magazine, like, you know, sort of like the glossies, which are all about kind of sticking a load of advertising in there yeah. and, and, and trying to kind of tell you, you are this person who likes these things and this is going to make you happy, that, you know, and, and then kind of, it's sort of, again, it's like not surprising that that kind of fell down. And yeah. so the magazines that are left standing are the ones that just never did that in the first place. That's an interesting point. I think that was the story with Lads Mags. I never, I wasn't in the country at that point in time. I managed to miss that period in British history. Look but, um, you know, that that's a real, it's, a, it's that classic hockey stick curve yeah. that just, Gets to the top and then goes bang straight back down again. <laughs> um, 
And it's it's built on fads and it's built on trends and it, and you know something like private high. It was just, it's a lot of things, but the last thing you can call it is is trendy. Well, it's, <laughs> <or> <laughs> it's never even really changed, has it? And all the years it's been published, it's more or less exactly the obviously the topics and slightly the people they're talking about are slightly different. But I bet the first one doesn't look much different from the one that was published last week. You know, yeah, it's still absolutely. very true to their. To their brand, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so right, so you you are two people who are running a, a print magazine. You're doing this. It sounds almost as a kind of maybe I was like an experiment to see it for itself. Like the so so as two people running a print magazine, what are the things that you butt your heads up against? What are the big problems? I would say the first one is the fact that we're really both. Um, primarily editorial people so that's a great thing in terms of um making it, making it yeah <laughs> pulling the content together speaking to people which is you know all the stuff that we love to do but when it comes to marketing audience um you know ad sales all those other things that need to be done to get a magazine um to make a magazine profitable or at least wash its own face uh, that's all on us too and that's obviously a huge a huge learning curve at best and at, and at worst a struggle because you know we both work full-time and do this in our spare time so yeah trying to cover all those job roles uh, at the same time has been it's, let's just say it's given us a whole new appreciation for ad salespeople <laughs> and marketers and social media experts. Um, so I'd say that's the thing we've, we've run up against personally because of our own skill sets. Yeah, I think part of the problem is you do the things that you either that you like or that you're good at, and those aren't necessarily the most important things. No, and I mean, <laughs> if you think about it, some of the indie magazines that have launched over even the last decade you know they, they're coming from an incredibly good place like you said steve like people are incredibly passionate about the subject matter the the, to the topic the the people who are in that industry but actually if your editorial can be absolutely fantastic but if you're not getting it in front of people if you're not selling the copies if no one's paying for ad sales it's probably not going to last two or three issues mm -hmm. and that's the we both kind of knew that yeah, no, we don't. But we're, we're experiencing it for real, which is uh, bags of fun. I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah, it's not about no, it's not really about knowing it. It's about changing it for yourself, and mm. yeah, that's hard work. It definitely, is a hard work. Mm. I think the other thing is so our, our budget's not unlimited, so we're writing a lot of stuff ourselves. And I think long term, we would love to have the budget to be bringing other people in, other voices in. We're a little bit, I, I talked to um, the the guys at um, Iceberg Press that did simple, they do simple things, but used to do O'Connelly. And one of the things that they were saying um, was that one of the things that they decided them not to do that magazine anymore was the fact that they realised that they couldn't actually pay people properly mm. to contribute. Mm. And I think that's where we'd, we'd love more people to contribute, but we can't pay people right now. So, And you can always, people, as long as you're not a dickhead, people will always do stuff for nothing for you, right? Because I've done stuff for 
people and you've done stuff for people. Yeah, there's a there's that kind of industry that people are really happy to help each other yeah. out and give each call, other tips and you can call them favors, but but it, you know what like Peter says, we want more voices and we mean that in every sense that we want more people to, to be writing, but we want a bigger diversity of voices as well. Mm-hmm. But we ca- cannot in all good conscience do that until we can pay people decent money for it. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of against against our principles. Um it doesn't matter if we earn any money, we're not earning any. But <laughs> as long as everybody else that has a plays a part in it gets some then be yeah, nice if it didn't cost money. That would be so we'd probably and that's fine, yeah, we're probably just about breaking even which is maybe better than we talked for. Yeah, exactly. It was never going to make us our millions, Steve, I don't think. No, we've got... Unless some, you know... Still doing set for life. Unless uh, anonymous, some anonymous benefactor kind of steps in. Yeah, anyone that wants to invest in the magazine, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk to anyone. I think, you know, you, you used the word experiment, and that's really interesting. I think we do see it as an experiment. Um, I, that The newsletter, the Magazine Diaries newsletter... Mm-hmm which we've been woefully, I've been woefully bad at, at putting out regularly. One of the things that we want to do with that is share those learnings and try and tell people, look, this is what we figured out this month. Don't do this. Do it a different way. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to say, oh, we balls up here. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah, we want to share, we want to be so honest with you. We <laughs> want to tell you every mistake we let make. Yes, and we're like, we are oh, idiots. We can't, we can't tell people that. <laughs> I these two are magazine people. <laughs> I think well, the big obvious one was subscriptions. We should mm. we actually should have offered subscriptions from day one. Mm. But if we're being brutally honest, as we promised that we won't be, mm. we didn't know how many copies, how many issues we were going to make. Mm. So subscriptions mm. felt like a commitment too far. <laughs> yeah, originally we talked about we've always talked about doing a finite number of issues and originally it was going to be four and it felt like by the time we got the first one out the door it didn't seem worth asking people to subscribe for it now we've got slightly more ambitious goals we well, we're, def- to- we're committed to sex for sure um, peter would like to do more i think between, I would like to between do more. me think, and you and all your listeners <laughs> i think there's more i think there's so much more to talk about and i think there's different things that we can get to so our next issue is a, is a it's a star trek issue so um, the future generation, or the next generation, sorry, messing up my Star Trek metaphors here. Uh, the next generation of readers and leaders. So that's brilliant. That's a lovely one. We're really keen on doing that. We've got my granddaughter actually coming to work with us for work experience for a fortnight. So she's like proper... Is she Gen Z or Gen Alpha? No, Gen Alpha. So we've got Gen Alpha sat with me. Uh, who's Gen X. Gen X, not Boomer, as some people have <laughs> accused me of being. <laughs> Much offence to that. Um, and I think we're going to try and have a lot of fun with that. I think we'll try and get her, Joe's got this idea of getting Robin to actually interview me, so Gen Alpha interviewing Gen X in this context. But we've also got loads of plans to talk to the, the next generation of, you know, students magazine students um you know pupils in schools things like that get their kind of insights but also get them involved in the production of the magazine so i think it'd be um yeah it'll be 
insightful and also a real collaborative effort which is uh you know something we're all about but all as right. peter says there's the reason we've planned a fine art run was never that we it was because of you know practical concerns like money and whatever rather than you know i don't think we'd ever run out of things to say about the industry obviously any magazine person knows that they're always happy to chat on about it so yeah in theory we could probably go on forever <laughs> but yeah as i said with that and an anonymous benefactor we'll, we'll have to see how that goes all right well the, uh, so I, I know there are a bunch of uh, students who listen to these podcasts so if anyone is listening to it soon enough uh how should they get in touch with you to get involved with this if the email um hello at grubstreetjournal.com and just introduce themselves we'll get back in touch and chat to them we're really up for it we want to talk to lots and lots of people so yeah please get in touch with us i'd love to hear from you all right it's been lovely talking to you too thanks so much uh for making time uh and we'll look forward to seeing that next issue when it comes out brilliant thanks Steve. february i guess that's what it says in here. That's what it says in the magazine. I guess. Thanks very much. Bye now. Thanks, Steve. See you later. Okay, that's all for this week. I would like to say thanks again to Peter and Joanna. And I don't know about you, but I would not be at all surprised if we see the Grub Street Journal extending out beyond that sixth issue. Now, if you regularly listen to the end of these episodes, you'll know we have a sort of secret club within a club going here because if you use the code PODCAST when you subscribe to Stack, we'll knock 10% off our normal prices and I'll thank you at the end of our next episode. That is what Lennon Fanning did this week, so thanks very much, Lennon, and welcome to the club. Uh, The first magazine should be arriving very soon and I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to have a surprise magazine delivered every month, go to stackmagazines.com and use the code PODCAST and you'll save 10% and I'll thank you at the end of our next episode or I'll read out a message for you or kind of whatever you want really. Like I love this idea of a club within a club so I'm totally open to suggestions. I'm recording this on the 30th of November, so of course Christmas is just around the corner and I need to say that Stack makes a brilliant present, so please do think of us when you're doing your Christmas shopping. I'm going to be speaking with the makers of Emergence magazine this weekend at an event here in London. Their discussion is going to be all about the evolving medium of the magazine. I'm really looking forward to it. So I think we'll use that as the audio for our next episode of the podcast. So watch out for that coming soon. And of course, if you're not already, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts so we can deliver our new episodes to you as soon as they're ready. Thank you very much for listening to this one and we'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks.